Hey, Diana, this one's for you. Welcome to the Inspiro Podcast, a podcast exploring personal growth, leadership, strategy, communication, and fulfillment. We are your hosts, Jason Luchtefeld and Bill Woodburn. I'm here as a dentist transitioning into a career to help facilitate individuals and their organizations towards a more fulfilling future. Hi there, I'm Bill Woodburn, and I'm a licensed professional counselor and licensed marriage and family therapist in Austin, Texas. I'm fascinated by the way people come together to solve problems, whether that's couples or families, dental practices or organizations. We're going to be exploring a lot of topics, and for us to be able to be free to do that, I have to let you know that this is not intended to be dental advice or counseling advice. I recently received an email from Gallup, so I'm on their mailing list, and I get regular updates about their leadership and strengths and the various areas in which they're involved. One of those is for surveys, and they just released their Gallup Global Emotions results for 2023, which was a large survey meant to measure life's intangibles, as they call it, feelings and emotions, which we've been talking about now for uh, several months. They do this because the normal indicators that we look at for a thriving society don't take this into account. So you look at economic indicators, you look at GDP, you look at uh, uh, unemployment. You would think that, especially unemployment, you would be talking about feelings and emotions, but most surveys don't. So I think this is a really interesting survey that does measure that. So they did 147,000 interviews across 142 countries. Uh, The survey was done in 2022 with results now released in 23. And they surveyed both positive and negative experience questions, trying to kind of feel out how are people doing? They then end up with a positive experience index score which we might be talking about how how happy are those people. And then a negative experience index score. Uh, How miserable, how unhappy are those people? So the positive experience, a little background, a little data for you, just to give you the framework that we're operating under. When they talk about the positive experience index score, this is all affirmative responses to some specific questions. I'll give you a couple example questions here in a second as well. Multiplied by 100. So a country level index score would range from zero to 100. Zero meaning not very many positive experiences. 100 meaning a whole bunch, all of them. (laughs) Okay. The scores strongly relate, according to Gallup, to people's perceptions about their living standards, personal freedoms, and the presence of social networks. 
So I think it's important that we do talk about those when we're talking about the positive experience in Ash, we're talking about those three items as being kind of dissected out of the data. And I think they did a terrific job of taking something as vague and amorphous as happiness and moving it into experiences. And when I read those, I, I really resonated with that. I said, yeah, no, that 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 are, is what people experience that leads to happiness. We're, we're not asking the question, are you happy, which is is is, is a swamp. Uh, they, I think they broke it down to some pretty logical and reasonable questions to ask. So I, I, I like, I, I like the study. Good, good. That, I am happy that you said that since we're going to spend some time on it. <laughs> and, uh, if you would have said the study was awful, then I guess we could just crumple it up and throw it on the floor and switch subjects. But <laughs> this is good. <laughs> I also think that it's, it's a brave study. It's easier just to look at GDP. I mean, put the numbers in the spreadsheet. Let's go. And I think that one of the things that that makes people unhappy is that we're too often trained to take the easy road of let's look at the spreadsheet. Uh, GDP is up. The practice is making money. Um, the 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 hygienist did, did great last month. We must all be happy. Uh, and I think it's kind of a, I mean, I think it's kind of a, just an easy road. It's it's not it's not the best road, but sure is easy. I get it. Uh, and I'm reminded historically back in the the day, uh, the Roman Empire had a terrific GDP. Now about half the people were slaves, but the GDP was great. They didn't care a whole lot. There was no Gallup back then to uh, survey the emotions of said people. <laughs> Well, okay. They, they weren't they weren't interested as long right. as the GDP was high. If they were to have asked questions back then, they might ask questions like this: <laughs> "Doth thou feel well rested?" <laughs> that was a terrific question and one that covers so many bases that I think it's a very reasonable question for us to be asking ourselves, particularly vis-a-vis -vis our practices, yours and mine is do I feel well rested? Because when there's a disturbance in our lives, it really tends to show up in in both literal sleep, uh, time, effectiveness, wherever you are in the sleep cycle, but also the perception of rest. If we go through a day with our muscles literally tensed up, we've, we've armored up because we feel threatened, we don't feel good, we don't feel in, we're in a good place. We can be really exhausted by the end of the day. We can say, well, man, I just, I'm just not getting enough rest. You know, it's not just sleep. It's how much rest you get. And I love that they use the, you know, do you feel well rested? Do you feel loose? Do you feel uh, that you have energy? Do you have energy left over at the end of the day? You, it, it brings in those pieces mm -hmm. that I think we really need to look at. It's like, I just sleep. Yeah, okay, I got eight hours and I'm good. Mm, this, this was a little more subtle than that, and I appreciate it. Yeah. I think this is a question that is probably much easier and more relatable for people now than it would have been even 10 years ago because we're talking so much more about sleep and the importance of sleep. There's so much research now about 
the value of a good night's sleep to everything from how do you feel during the day to what are your hormones doing? What is your heart doing? You mentioned tension and how that relates. So I think there's, it's not only a good question to ask for the reasons you mentioned, it's also applicable to what we're seeing now with people not resting, not sleeping well for a whole variety of reasons. And we've got a lot more research in the last 10, 15 years on the effects of both lack of sleep and lack of rest. Um, Though I was, I was stunned about five years ago uh, flying in the face of research when uh, I discovered that uh, folks had gotten together, the, the folks who regulate this stuff had gotten together and determined that medical residents in hospitals could only work for 24 hours straight before they needed some rest. Right. I know that after 10, 12 hours or much less at a, a difficult job like being a physician, your executive functioning is going to suffer, which is exactly what we're hiring these guys for. You know, we're, we're not expecting them to, you know, throw a javelin or something at the end of the day. It's like, no, no, we need your decision-making skills. And we have research that says that's what's going to be impacted if we just keep these guys up too long. It's amazing how, and I'm, I'm not just going to blame the medical community here. We all have this weird idea that we can just go on and we don't lose any functioning. But research says otherwise. The problem is we also lose the ability to assess our functioning. Mm, it's right. one of the pieces that goes. That So this is a bit of a tangent, but I think valuable. One of the things that has also come out lately is the value in surrendering. So there is a real push to hustle. No plan B, no, you know, just keep hustling, keep pushing, whatever it is, you go push through it, have grit, you know, that kind of stuff. Well, the person that authored the book Grit, Amy Edmondson, has just recently been posting some stuff on social media about how frustrated she is at people misinterpreting her research. Yes. That grit doesn't mean you push through at all costs. It's a completely different idea. Same with psychological safety. Uh, that mm. term has also been uh, apparently abused for certain people's gain. And so this idea of... of Pushing through when you're tired, when you don't feel rested, uh, when you haven't had a good night's sleep is not necessarily the right choice. There are circumstances where that's needed. You know, an emergency room physician needs to push through to save somebody's life. That's one thing. But to push through so that I can make my next PowerPoint slide, like, just take a break. Yeah. And yet we we do tend to function as though we're in a constant emergency mm. that we're all that that, that that life is hanging by a thread at every moment um when you were talking about that i i remember this this movie that i watch watch a scene from a movie and it's about about football players but it's much deeper about some psychological pieces and um and one of the guys looks over at the other player and says do you ever do you ever get to like enjoy the pain? And the guy says, yeah, it makes me feel like I'm doing something important. Mm. I think sometimes 
we drive ourselves not because we're sort of victims of the cultural whatever, but it makes us feel important if we think that the pain we're enduring, the sacrifices we're making are somehow made. We are vital. We are absolutely important. Our next decision is, and I think that that tells us more about the struggle for a sense of, of validation and importance mm. than necessarily how things are set up in, in, in a practice or a business. You know, it, it, yes, it kind of feels good Mm-hmm. And many of us to to have it on the line where we are going to be the decider and we're going to have that moment of 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 of, of triumph. We we're going to be the hero. Uh, yeah, but we pay for that. So it's reinforcing the personal narrative or personal story that we have about ourselves in mm-hmm. a way that is soothing or gives us. And it, I think, it also counters the story that many of us suspect that we're kind of small people on a small planet doing small things most mm-hmm. of the time that our decisions don't exactly count mm-hmm. um again i was watching an interview with uh, john houseman many many years ago and a, sh- a tv show he was in was canceled and they said well we didn't have enough viewers uh, we only had four million viewers and he said what shocked him is he suddenly realized he was now living in a world where the preference of 4 million people didn't actually count for anything. Right. Wild. It's yeah. like, well, I'm only one person. Yeah. <laughs> and maybe if you're working in a practice, you got 10, 15 people, but guess what? In, in, in the world's parlance or even in the national stage, one person, 15 people. I, I, we all suspect that doesn't really count for a lot. Mm-hmm. So we want to compensate. So to our 4 million listeners, we hope that you are enjoying this <laughs> conversation so far. But you may not be enough. So if you come up to right. 5 million, it would really help us. Yeah. All right. And <laughs> that was a, a lot of time spent on the, our first example question. Um, I'm going to move on to our next <laughs> po- uh, example question. I'm just going to give another one or two of these. Um, one I really like a lot. Did you smile or laugh a lot yesterday? That just reading that that was a question here makes me smile. Yes, me too. I, I, I like that they bring up the, to me. This is an indication of joy. How much joy are you experiencing in a given day? And I I really like the idea that they're trying to figure out how much joy people are, are experiencing and doing that through smiling and laughing. The other piece for me is it 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 reminds us that a certain amount of happiness is physically based. See, mm. Did you smile or laugh? Those are just almost automatic physical responses. In other words, is your body going around happy? I mean, or, or, or do you have happiness that actually runs through your body? Or is it just this intellectual perception that I should be happy today because, well, this and this and this? Or are you genuinely fully happy where you just laughed at something? Yeah. That requires a whole body response that not just an intellectual assent to something. Yeah. So we've talked before about affect. <clears throat> what is your kind of general mood? Mm-hmm. And it would be easy. Well, we've talked about this too, to say, oh, I'm good. And 
does good mean happy? Does good mean joyful? And maybe, maybe not. But when it does become an expression of a physicality, then there's no denying that it's on that positive spectrum. You know, and we often talk about how to, you know, we work with so many dental practices that are really highly trustworthy and want to be seen that way. I mean, it's, it, 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 it they've, they've achieved it, but being, you know, being trustworthy, but they need to transmit it often very quickly to patients, some of them new patients. You know, when I walk into a practice, one of the things I always do is I listen for the laughter. Mm. I listen for the lilt of the voice when someone speaks, because all of that is very subconsciously mediated. I mean, you, it's it's hard to fake a laugh or a little light lilt in the voice when you're having a good time or when you're curious or when you're just you've just talked to a patient and you know it it was a delightful moment. Those things are, are very authentic and they also help me as a patient relax out like, okay. It's really weird because if we look at sort of the official thing, you know, you're supposed to be you know, have this gravitas and be sort of, you know, limited and, you know, be very careful that you have a very serious sort of demeanor. That's actually not what, what builds trust with a patient. It, it's that sense that that you're fully human. And part of that is your body's responding to the good parts of the day and the good parts of the practice. And I certainly walked into practices that were very sort of quiet and serious and wondered, does anybody actually want to be here? Many practices do have that sense of this is a professional place doing serious business. And that's the mentality throughout the day. And you likely don't hear a whole lot of laughter. What I have seen a lot lately in people that are developing core values for their practices is they're putting fun in there. They're moving fun up the list to make the top five. And that that's great to see. What I really like, what I just put together here was if we are now wanting to make sure that's happening, you could ask this question in your daily team meetings. You could ask it in your monthly or your quarterly reviews, your annual plan, any and all of those to your team and even to your patients. Did you smile or laugh a lot yesterday and see what answers they come up with? If if there's the answers, no. And you have fun as a core value, well, time to start telling more jokes or something. I'd even suggest you could also uh, run your own experiment. Uh, end of the day, you're in your office, you're filling out some paperwork. Leave the door open and just listen. Is there a lightness to the tone of voice? Is is there a little bit of laughter? Did somebody tell a joke? Uh, I mean, it's particularly because a lot of times, you know, Patients are going home. We're, we're, we're just hanging out with ourselves. It, it, again, is there a lightness or is there heaviness? Yeah, are doors slamming and instruments clanking? <laughs> or is there... Uh, yes. Getting this or is the deadly artificial silence where it's like, oops, nobody's talking. Something's got to be wrong. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to pick one more on this sure. side. Uh and again, it's just because I like it so much. Did you learn or do something interesting yesterday? So I think that there is a, I might use this word wrong. There is a privilege to having the ability to 
learn or do something interesting versus just survive. And I think what we're going to see in some of these results is that some of the countries that came out with low scores, it would might be hard to find an opportunity to learn or do something interesting because they're trying to survive. And so this puts us at a certain likely a certain socioeconomic level to be able to have this option. And if we do have this option though, are you taking advantage of it? Are you seeking opportunities to do this? And if not, why? And what jumped out at me when I saw that is that's really a question about safety. Yeah. Uh, what Once you feel safe, you can be curious. It's real hard to be curious when you don't feel safe. Uh, you know, lack of safety funnels your attention very specifically to survival and 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 you don't have room to to just ask questions about I wonder why this is like that. Um, but yeah, if you can be curious, if you can play, that's again a sign of safety. So really, that's that's a question. How safe are you? That's right. That's right. <clears throat> okay. I think I'm gonna go through some of the positive experience results. And then we'll handle the negative all in one order. And then we'll uh, kind of summarize our thoughts. So our positive experience, uh, so they do this survey regularly. And they have found now, uh, since 2006, actually, that the positive experience index has kind of slowly been making a trajectory upwards. But it took a sharp downward trend in 2021. And now it's just starting to come back up to get closer to where it was in 2018-19. I, I don't think that would be any surprise to somebody knowing what the world has been through in 2020 and 2021, but uh, we're bouncing back. And I think that's the that's the good news. Um, and I'll add an, a piece to that is part of what that shows is that we have the capability to bounce back. You know, it, it, yeah, obviously 2021 was tough worldwide. Yeah. Uh, we, we were all really tired of the sacrifices of the pandemic. We had become really aware of the losses uh, of, 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 of lives, but also of livelihoods and uh, things we enjoyed. Uh, and we were, you know, really pretty done with all this. Um, and so I, I, I get the, the, the down, but the thing I, I love about human beings is we're putting it back together. Mm -hmm. And again, it's not just GDP. There is a sense of, of hope and positivity and, um, you know, that upswing both gives me hope, but I also think it's a sign of hope. Mm. Yeah. So overall, <clears throat> uh, the questions we touched on 71% of people said they felt well-rested. Uh, 73% smiled or laughed a lot. The lowest scoring one was the last one that we talked about, which I think you hit the nail on the head at being about safety with only 50% of people feeling they were able to learn something or do something interesting. Requires a sense of access. There are some things about, about social network here. That also, it really helps if you have a social network. Mm -hmm. Be curious with people. Uh, as opposed to a social network that has become dedicated to just surviving. 
along those lines, you seem to be reading my mind about where I'm going with this, Bill. I, and just so people know, we both have read through this, but we haven't talked about it yet. So uh, it's interesting to see where we're converging on some different ideas. Top scores, most positive experiences for people. For a region, it's South America, which tends to have the, uh, I'm going to call it a stereotype of more togetherness in their culture, more social interaction. It might make sense that that would correlate with more positive experiences in their lives. Uh, An area that is in the top 10 that never has been before is Southeast Asia. So they jumped up for some reason. I I hope that they do some follow-up studies about why these are located in the places they are. Yeah. That's that surprised me. And I think some of that, like you're saying, are, 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 you know, my, my, you know, American stereotypes that some of these places are places of turmoil and crisis and, and stress and, but we're getting back answers that said these are not these are these people are not responding like people that are are in crisis and in you know permanent distress there's mm-hmm. there's some mediating factor going on that that makes it not turn out like my stereotype well so we talked about social the other you know a lot of research has been done on how much money mm-hmm. is required to be quote unquote happy and that would vary from in different parts of the world mm-hmm and different social circumstances and and whatnot but the idea was or the what the results that came out was roughly $75,000 that's adjusted for american dollar that threshold seemed to have a correlation with somebody reporting being happy or unhappy there's also some some research in, and i think we'll do a whole episode on this so i don't want to go into it too far yeah. But what we've known from repeated research that once people have enough enough money, meaning usually to afford the lifestyle they have in their heads, okay, which is a complicated thing, but we'll move on. Um, what happens is their reason to work changes to things okay. that are much more about fulfillment and much more about curiosity and much more about happiness and social connection. Mm-hmm. And so you're right. Once, once you get past a certain level, there's actually a big and fairly sudden shift in the way people view what they're doing and, and how people are going to view coming into a practice every morning. Uh, and it's, it's funny. It's, it's, it's not, per, it's correlated with money. Uh, but the shift is in the, is in the people. Sure. Yeah. So I just finished this book, Derek Thompson on work. It's about money, meaning, and identity. And it's pretty fascinating. It goes back more in history to talk about some of the history of work and how work has become this centerpiece for people. This idea of having, work that is meaningful that you're passionate about etc is a is a new concept it's a new thing thrust upon the worker because all of a sudden you're not working to put uh you're not working you're not tending to your garden to feed your family and your community 
you are going and doing something else that you're having to now exchange for money that is then used for these other things. And it, it takes a whole different uh, approach to what that means for us and how we find meaning in it or we don't and how that ties to our fulfillment and ideas of success and all these other tangents we could go down. So, and, you know, hi- historically, uh, somewhere in the 19th century, uh, American Americans began to decide that work should be hard. We always talk about respecting hard work. Notice, it's interesting. It's not successful work. It's not, I have this great flow at work, or that I just, you know, or, or the brilliance of work. No, it's supposed to be hard. And for some reason, if it's not hard, we have this weird imposter syndrome. We must not really be working. Uh, you know, uh, and I do that too. I mean, I'm sitting there, I'm working with a client, we're doing some wonderful psychodrama. I'm just feeling good about what I can do. And I'm thinking, God, and people pay me for this? Yeah. Um, but that's that thing that it we should be suffering at work. And if it's not, if we're not suffering, it's somehow not valid work. Mm. And, 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 and that really hits. And I think it hits a lot of dentists. It's, it certainly even hits counsel. In dentistry, I would say there's a bit of a... There's a dividing line between people that understand and appreciate that hard work can mean different things to different people in different circumstances. It can be hard physically, or it can be hard emotionally. It can be hard uh, cognitively, and that can mean different things. Other people equate very much like you just said, if something is not taxing, then is it really worth doing? Or is it worth complaining about? If we get to do that, if we get to be a dentist all day long, should we really complain? Because there's other people out there that are doing roofing or building drainage ditches and, you know, really toiling away at something that is, quote unquote, hard. Yeah. The hard, again, meaning suffering. Yes. Not not difficult. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we, we all do things that are occasionally difficult. That's not actually what that means. It means suffering. Right. Okay. On to our top 11 highest positive experiences worldwide 2022. I'm going to go in reverse order here of our top 11. There's 11 because of multiple ties here in this category. Uh, We have Nicaragua, the score of 82, Malaysia, 82, and Costa Rica, all at 82. We have El El Salvador at 83. And then Panama and Guatemala at 84. And then tied with 85 are our top five. So. And I do want to remind people that we're talking about a 100-point scale. Yes. So somebody that's up at 85, 86 is, my guess is somewhere around the 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 practical ma- maximum. I mean, there's a theoretical maximum of 100. <laughs> uh but I, I think your, your your practical is probably going to be somewhere around 80, 85. That's a great point. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, number five, Vietnam. Four, Philippines. Three, Paraguay. Number two, Mexico. That one surprises me a bit. And number one, Indonesia. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mexico surprises me because all we see in the news is about the gangs running the country 
and the the drug lords that are taking over towns and all of that. And so granted, this is a survey. We don't know who was surveyed, what part of Mexico they were surveyed, but it's still 147,000 people over 142 countries, which I think is a pretty big undertaking. That's a really, that's a really big survey. And, yeah. and the, you know, the, the piece you're also hitting on is it so depends on how we're going to define this. Mm-hmm. I mean, Gallup took that very brave and and creative stance of let's ask people about their experience, not assume that if the courts are in Mexico are faltering, then everyone's miserable. Right. Well, there's some other things going on here. Not not that there aren't problems in the world, but there's this interesting thing that that doesn't seem to translate somehow one-to-one in miserable people. Mm -hmm. So I mentioned Mexico is a surprise for me. And this is just maybe my own ignorance being revealed here. Uh, Philippines is a surprise. Vietnam is a surprise. Costa Rica is not a surprise. Again, this is because of what I hear, right? This is what I hear from friends, from the news. I'm like, oh yeah, Costa Rica. I'm surprised it's not higher. Everybody wants to go there. <laughs> well, yeah, and I want to extra put an extra piece here. My my view of Mexico may be different than than yours, partly because I talk to people that regularly go to Mexico to visit family. Okay. And they see that as a very positive experience, as a very grounding experience, as as an enriching part of their lives. Oh, good. You know, we're going to get to go down to visit our family for Christmas or, or you know. And so it's like, no, these are not miserable people. And they're not going down there to be miserable. They're going down there actually to connect with the happiness that is there for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and yet I talk to enough people that that, that changes my sense of, because of, I get to talk to the actual people who are actually happy doing it. Yeah. Okay. I think one question is going to come up from some of the people that I, I know. Mm-hmm. Maybe this is a sign of who I'm associating with. <laughs> all right. If if all those 11 countries are so great, why do people from there immigrate here? Here being America. I guess I'm doing this from Canada, but Canada also did not make the list. And um, so why do people immigrate to uh, the U.S. and Canada if those places are so positive? Good point. I don't know. Yeah. We need another, we need another survey to... To ask for that, um, I think though that we have to be careful that that's not a working around or wanting to not let there be the fact of there seems to be quite a few happy people in these countries. Yes, you know, it's it it's a it's a nice question to ask, but it's also can be a bit of a cop out. It's like, yeah. oh no, that must not be right. No. No, we have pretty good data that there's a fair amount of happy people in these countries. So, you know, it's like, no, wait a minute. Before we before we question it just to make ourselves feel better, let's just acknowledge that, yeah, that, that we ask some very good questions about happiness, which also include things like safety and sufficiency uh, and and even a sense of, of physical well-being. And... That's spread around the world. Another whole 
I could maybe poke in this if I'm trying to figure out how could I do this survey and make it so that results were what I wanted them to be. Then I might look for the affluent areas of Mexico for my survey population and not the barrio. Uh, I might go to the U.S. If I want the U.S. to show poorly, then I'm going to go and try and survey people in uh, East St. Louis, uh, not Beverly Hills or something like that. Hypothetically, that's, that's where we get into. Do, do we trust Gallup to be professional? Right. Uh, though I, th I think there's a there's a piece here that you're right that this could be heavily influenced by did they do it online? Mm -hmm. Well, that'd be a really great, quick, and easy way to get a lot of data. But it's also going to put in kind of a litmus test for who gets to take it. Or did they send people out to ask them? Test questions. Right. Where did these and like you said, where did where did they send them? Uh, Gallup is usually pretty good about asking questions like, "Did we get some sort of cross section?" Mm -hmm. um, and I think that if they'd had a, um, a a glaring problem like that, they're usually pretty good at mentioning really, you know, who who we who we questions were mostly these these sorts of people. Um, the other thing that that makes me you know, that helps me realize here the questions they were asking are are marvelous because they cut across cultures and because they cut across economic situations. Uh, you you could be poor and have a really great social network. Mm. You could mm -hmm. be rich and have a great social network. I mean, it's like that's kind of independent of some of these some of these things. Are you well? Are are you? you know, do you do you feel well rested? well wow yeah that's an experience that that human beings can get from a lot of different angles and a lot of different places so i think part of the genius of this is they went to experience um more directly than i've seen before and so what you end up with is something that really kind of cuts across i'm going to switch gears let's do that let's talk oh, about let's... negative experience index now interestingly this this is almost like a second survey that was done. So what happens is you could have one country that was that had high scores on both lists. It's yes. not like a company a, a country that has a high positive is going to be the, a low negative. I really appreciated that because yeah. I think that gets the nuances better that that sometimes people can be happy and other people right next to them cannot be. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Let's uh, talk about a couple of the questions that were asked. Uh, we have five of them here. I'm going to, let's see. Uh, question number two was, did you experience the following feelings a lot during the day? And the focus is on this one, worry. Worry to me, that's an important question because it, it kind of like you were alluding to before, it's not saying, are you unhappy or happy? It's worry. Worry is completely subjective. And so it's really getting into those subjective ideas of, of where are you? And as a counselor, when I hear worry, you know, I know that that's tied to a sense of helplessness. We worry about things we feel helpless against. It's, it's, it's that weird thing that humans do 
to try to get us to fight back against helplessness by thinking about something and planning about something. Only as we do, we recognize our helplessness. That's that's what engenders worry, as opposed to fear, uh, or 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 some sort of creative impulse of yeah, I got this. I I have a plan. It's it's when you have a plan and you realize that you're still helpless, even though you think you have a plan. Mm-hmm. Uh, or that there's no plan that really covers it. That's where we get into worry. So basically, we're talking about helpless. It, it's like saying, how how often do you feel helpless? Mm. Okay, so I was going to go the towards anxiety as well with that question. And then I noticed, though, they also asked about stress. So to me... Mm. I'm I'm a little surprised that they asked both worry and stress because I put those things together so closely. So maybe you could help me or hypothesize why it would be important to ask those two different questions. Have you experienced yeah. worry and have you experienced stress? Yeah, it's interesting because I like you, those are pretty close together uh, for me. Though... What I'm imagining is where they're headed with that is stress covers more about uh, how we we are not able to have the impact that we'd like to have, which is a little like helplessness, but it's 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 um, worry is much more about future projection. and stress is much more about the present moment, okay. And so I think they were, they, I, I don't know. I'm going to imagine that they were trying to cover both. Uh, of, are, are you, wor- quote, worried about the future? And are, are, are you under stress right now? Yeah. So the next one we have is sadness. I think that's <clears throat> fairly obvious why that makes the list uh, for people being in a negative experience index. Uh, well, they're trying I, to bring in a loss. Yeah. You know, I mean, uh, are, how many losses have you and most of us are are sad when we say we're sad in that kind of situation what we mean is we have a sustained sadness that's usually because the losses just keep coming or a loss has been so major that it is taking us a long time to dig out of it Mm -hmm. it's not i lost my car keys or even you know i lost my car it's it's i lost a loved one or every day there seems to be a loss Yeah. Okay. This is interesting from a personal perspective because I haven't (laughs) experienced a whole lot of sadness. That's a plus. That's a plus. I I feel I'm privileged. But I can see why this would fit here. I just wonder, would you say sadness is so pervasive that it... Obviously, it made the top five for Gallup to ask about. So is that something that is that prevalent that it's people are experiencing? I'm thinking I'm, I'm trying to poke a hole in your statement about uh, sadness being attached to loss. And could it be that sadness comes from other things so that, again, I'm coming back to the idea of uh, affect because they're talking about how people felt a lot the previous day. If someone were to feel almost chronically sad, then what I'm hearing from you is that would mean most likely that they are experiencing chronic loss. And I wonder if 
are there other things or is it is that the main one i would suggest that's the main one now are there other things of course people are complicated and we could go into that but i think if we're talking about 100,000 people and you talk about sadness i think what you're talking about is experience their reaction to loss now i do want to broaden loss out it could be i lost my job it could be i lost my child Sure. You know, there's 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 a lot of difference between those two in a, in a sort of objective level. But what they're asking about is is you know, th- are you sad? Mm-hmm. Um, I would also suggest that that what they're talking about is is a kind of um, a little bit of a worldview too. You know, people get trapped in sadness. People some we, call, we sometimes we say, well, they, they had a sad life. Okay, and 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 it's like yeah, and 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 we kind of know what that means, and it's not always internal; it's a little bit external, but it's not all external. It's kind of internal. It's it because of their circumstances, because of who they were, they sort of developed a a, a life of sadness, uh, and anybody meeting them would would say, oh, there's kind of a heaviness to them, or there's a little bit of a cloud. And again, that's not blaming them because they're often are reacting to something. But but it's a tangible thing. We notice as human beings. We we notice if somebody's sad. It, there's a circuit in our brain that goes off and says, well, wait a minute, that person's sad. You know, you're helping me here relate this to more things now. So I could see where somebody, if you could feel trapped in a job that is meaningless to you and feel sad about that on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. And you could have, you mentioned a loved one, a child, for example, you could be sad about that for years and have a profound effect. So, yeah, okay. Or it could change the way you even look at your own life. Right. Right. Okay. That helps. Thanks. Uh, how about anger? The most, one of the most powerful emotions for screwing up the way people think. <laughs> Well, remember that the, the base of most anger is is some sort of hurt. Mm-hmm. Okay, so again, that's asking, you know, how often are you being hurt? And if 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 yesterday you 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 felt either intense anger or low level but persistent anger, okay, I'm going to assume there's some hurt going on, and if that's become something of a lifestyle then maybe you are living a life where there is some pretty constant hurt. Um, and, and again, hurt can be physical, but hurt can also be emotional. Uh, curiously, that the most current research is showing that physical pain and emotional pain are processed by the same regions of the brain. So we begin, we're beginning to suspect they're the same pain. That was a beautiful segue <laughs> into the fifth and final item they asked about, which was physical pain. And this gets to access to care, access to help, and countries that have more access or adequate access for the needs of the people are going to score a whole lot better than places that there is no access. Sure. And, you know, let's also broaden that out. Instantly, people think of uh, access to medical care or dental care. And that's true. But I also want to want to put in, you know, people who have not had good access to nutrition. Uh, mm-hmm. 
then later in life, there are lots of, of pains and deficiencies that that show up or people who are doing jobs or living in an environment that is just hard on the body. Mm. And, and so there are places where 50 year olds are, are largely crippled, not because of some genetic structure, but because life is so hard mm. that, that you're going to wear these guys out. Yeah. Um, you know, historically there was, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll do some like bodies from the 19th century or whatever. And they'll say, Oh yeah, this guy was a farmer. Well, how do we know? Because of the furrows in the bones from the repetitive, you know, muscle, uh, not just movement, but exertions. Mm -hmm. And it's like, Oh, and so this guy gets to be 50, 55, that shoulder's going to be hurting, you know, not because uh, he doesn't have medical care, but because he just got worn out by his life. Yeah. Yeah. The, so the human body is amazing at what it can adapt to, but form does follow miles and miles. Yeah, yeah absolutely, yeah, yeah. I believe you. <laughs> form does follow function, so there is uh, some cool examples in a book uh, called uh, "The Evolution of the Human Head," where, uh, for example, a baby born without one eye, uh, the eye socket actually never develops because it's the pressure of the eye that helps to shape the eye socket bone. Uh, Same thing with the airway. If the nose is not used during childhood, then the nasal airway doesn't develop appropriately. And there's other things like that. So we can even see that later in life where as a dentist that's right-handed, that's constantly turning left and leaning over using my right foot for everything from running the handpiece to driving a car. But the whole right side of my body is slightly different than my left because of 20 plus years of doing this repetitive motion. So whenever I'm dug up um, a thousand years from now, they're going to be able to look at me and say, wow, this guy must've been a dentist or a a hunchback, (laughs) (laughs) a bell ringer. <laughs> oh yeah. Uh well, you know, one of the things I had to learn uh as I, you know, began to work more and more with the dental community uh is is how actual physical pain is something that for sure older dentists uh have is some of to a lot of. I mean, there's a there's a range and that some people actually have to leave the profession because of it. Yeah, that that it 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 becomes um, something that you can do for a while, but but not forever. Mm-hmm. And and that and we all we think of dentists or lay people think of dentists as a largely intellectual, um, you know, uh, occupation. And I think it, it took me a while to to realize how f- genuinely physical it is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, it can be pretty hard on the on the old body, but not complaining. Not complaining. Yep. Well, yeah. Let All me right. dig into that. Let me dig into that. We also have this interesting idea about complaining. Uh, yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> let me let me suggest that 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 one of the reasons why we don't want to hear people quote complain is because we don't want to feel. Uh, a sense of futility and maybe helplessness. Hmm. Complaint is about, I'm not really going to change anything 
I'm I'm just going to get angry about it because we've been talking about anger. I'm just going to get angry about. It. I'm going to angry about the pain. I'm going to get angry about the hurt of physical, emotional, mental, whatever. Uh, but what we think of as a complaint is, but I'm not going to do anything. I'm not going to take steps. And and I see it, and I absolutely Dennis see that with patients come in, and they say, you know, I want this fixed, but you know. I'm not really going to go through with all this stuff. And and you're thinking, but it hurts. Why? Do, I mean, no, I'm just telling you about it, but I'm not. And there's this sense of futility and frustration that comes up inside of us when someone approaches us like that. And, and it really affects our sense of happiness. Hmm. Uh, we don't want to be that guy. We also see that as such a trap. And and a and a very sure way to not be happy. Complaining is not a sign of happiness. We're we most people have got that down, right? Okay, I'm gonna. I, I think that that is one version of why people would say that or avoid saying that. I'm gonna tell you. I think I said it. I said that because okay. of gratitude. Oh yeah, yeah. In that. I know that I'm pretty lucky to be able to suffer in this way, getting paid what I do in a nice air conditioned place with people that are laughing. So if I have a little discomfort sometimes, that's not that big a deal. And people have it a whole lot worse. That I mean, It's more of a gratitude, like appreciation that I'm not going to complain about this because I appreciate the circumstances I'm in and... It's not that bad. Well, and, th- and thank you for the correction. Yeah. I, 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 and, and that's that also tells us about what I'm going to, I'm going to just come up with a new word, systemic happiness. Okay. Okay. That, that in that moment, you might be unhappy about that one thing. You know, my knee's a little mm, today, kind of hurts, you know, I'm working, but, mm. but like you said, I'm working in a good place with good people. Uh, I'll, I'll later get some good medical care, probably get rid of this pain. I mean, so when we look at the problem in the whole of our lives in that moment, that makes such a huge difference. Uh, if you were a guy who was out digging ditches that you had been doing for months and would be doing for years to come, around guys you did not like out in a 105 temperature like we're going to have today that you would see that very differently mm-hmm. the, the, your systemic happiness level would be so low it's like oh and this too along with that it's i i think the idea that we have a we do have a solution we we can remove the insult we we're not trapped and so feeling trapped can amplify probably all five of these things that we're that we just talked about in negative, especially physical pain. If you don't see any possibility of that pain ending, so then now it's chronic pain that we're talking about, then it, you're not going to feel so good about it. One of the things I think was missing in the study that if I was, you know, back doing a doing a dissertation, I'd probably dive into. Um that there's a cumulative effect that mm. that if if you if you get enough of these positive things going then these negative things 
are not going to be as reportable. They're not going to be as impactful, you know. Or if you get a bunch of these negative things going, but you did happen to laugh the other day, you know, it, it doesn't take that away. There's like this cumulative effect that in the in some of those happy people in those happy places, I'm sure they have struggles, but but they they didn't code them the same way mm. as the people in the other places that had the negative and all the negatives that day. Right. We don't we we don't actually see these as separate events when it's our life. All right. So our negative experience scores are scored the same as the positive. So the more people said they experienced these negative things, the higher the score. Same scale. A hundred would mean that everybody experiences these things every day. A zero, a very low score, is a sign of uh better <laughs> in quotes and uh let's see uh they do make kind of a opinion statement here uh people's experiences with health problems and their ability to afford food are predictive of higher negative scores so that's one kind of socioeconomic piece that we touched on early on that would probably factor in here that they're saying they're agreeing with I'm going to yeah, say, and, and I, I translate those into, you know, lack of safety and a general sense of vulnerability. Um, you know, the more vulnerable you feel and, and, and the more that vulnerability is about some real essential piece of life, it's just going to be hard to be happy. I guess we, we, uh, I forgot to do the lowest positive experiences, but that's okay. You know, we'll I'd go like on. To, to go on to what we could talk to individuals about and um, people in dental practices about pulling stuff from this study and what okay let I, me I give like we did with the positive let me give the uh, top 11 yeah. or yeah. negative so these would be the um, highest negative experiences worldwide we'll go in the same order as before so again high score is the worst place to be. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the, the highest score achieved was a 58. We have two countries that did that. Um, on our top 11 list, we uh, we start at 47. We have four countries there. We have Uganda, Northern Cyprus, Congo, Armenia. Next up at 48, we have Lebanon. We have two countries at 49, Liberia and Guinea. We have two countries at 53, Iraq and Chad. And we have two countries at 58, Sierra Leone and Afghanistan. That's our worst. And they did make a comment here in their report that on this negative experience index, Afghanistan is still at the top, which apparently has been for a while. And they're slightly improved from uh, a previous year of uh, 59, which was the record high. And they have a high enough score in enough of the categories that they, they consider it actually suffering. Mm. Yeah, I'm yeah, I, I saw that and I was so glad that, that they went ahead and were bold enough to say there is such a thing as suffering. And, mm -hmm. and there is there there is a line you cross where, where we're, we're talking about suffering, not just having a bad day. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. <laughs> and, and notice as we look through these, uh, you know, the one of the fundamental principles, of course, is, you know, when when your country becomes somebody's battleground. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it, it has it has long term effects. It's not like, well, it's over. So it's over. Uh, I mean, if 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 this was early 19th century, uh, sorry, if this was early 20th century, uh, you know, we could have talked to guys in Belgium about how happy are you? Mm -hmm. um, well, OK, you've had armies run run over you twice. How has that has that working for you? And they probably say it's going to take us going to take us a generation or two to get happy here. Yeah. Uh, the worst experience being felt is physical pain. 30 percent of the world is is experiencing physical pain on a daily basis. Um, the highest for that was Sierra Leone, which hits on what you just said, 77% there. And uh, the lowest physical pain is Vietnam, only 8%. And the biggest changes in terms of worst physical pain increased over 10 percentage points in both Sierra Leone and Gabon and Afghanistan. And the most improvement, only one country saw an improvement of uh, 10%, and that was Poland, saw physical pain decrease by 10%. So that's a plus. So uh, with that, really interesting study, um, really fascinating to see who were the who experienced the most positive and the most negative emotions around the world. Uh, they did not publish their entire list of 142 countries. So I don't know where the US and Canada and Great Britain and more for the first Somewhere world countries. In the middle, we That's assume. right. That's right. Yeah. Let's uh, switch gears, talk about what we can do to give ourselves more positive experiences and either limit or deal with the negatives. Now, I think you, you touched on one that was terrific. Uh, studies and lots of anecdotal experience. Uh, talk about gratitude uh, as being an important piece to happiness. And by gratitude, I'm going to talk about two different things, not just a feeling, but also a perception. Because I noticed when you talked about the gratitude, you didn't say, well, I just have this feeling in my chest that I'm grateful. You, you know, you said, when I look at my life, when I take a wider view than just in that moment when I'm struggling with that patient and my shoulder hurts, when I when take a, a when when I sum it up, when I take a a wider view, then I can move into some gratitude. And so I I, I think one of the the uh, the things that I'd recommend is is you know check if you're having a bad day, check your scope. You know, it's like what are 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 you. Are you focused way down on just one thing? Have you lost the ability to to see that you had a pretty good breakfast that morning, and uh, you know you had a nice chat with your wife before you left for the office, or or most importantly, and this is a thing I see. It's very easy for those of us that are high performers and really care about our achievement to suddenly lose touch with how many people around us are helping us. Mm it starts to be, we're focused down on this problem. We're focused down on our performance on this problem. It's sort of, we're mano a mano in battle with this, this problem right here. And we forget that standing beside us is this assistant who is both in, 
you know, practically helping us and also encouraging us and also wants the best for us in the practice. And that the, the, the hygienist who referred knows that this was a, this is going to be a tough job and she's out. She, she may be at a distance, but she's rooting for us because she understands it's going to be, it could be, this one's going to be a little tricky. And, and she's, she's going to be happy to talk to the patient later for some follow-up and smooth out this experience if she can, that there are people around us and, you know, often they are really helping. Let, let me let me throw three things out there that, if I'm going to sum up um, my soundbite for what makes people unhappy, yeah, as a counselor who hears a lot of unhappiness, if I was going to really narrow it down, I'd say there are three things that human beings struggle with, and when they're present in our lives. Uh, it, it makes it very hard for us to be positive, grateful, happy, to score high on, on those, those indicators from the Gallup. So number one is isolation. We do not do well in isolation. Uh, human beings are basically pack animals. Uh, we, 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 we can go off and do things by ourselves, but it leaves us vulnerable. And, and there are very few people that can operate that, that can have a setback or a loss while isolated and still do okay. You know, it's fine if we're doing, if things are fine, but, you know, we run into trouble and we're isolated and it's like, oh, this is having a much bigger effect than it might. Uh, the other one is helplessness. Uh, I think that the human brain has never evolved to be able to handle helplessness. We can handle a lot of stuff, you know, anger and loss and 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 joy, and we we can handle all that stuff, and it's great, and it's productive, and it can be even generative, and good things can happen. I mean, you put a person into helplessness, and I can pretty much guarantee you that nothing good is going to happen next. Uh, people are going to get sad, depressed. Uh, they're going to they're going to we make dumb moves to try to get out of it just because we can't handle being in it anymore. Uh, we do things like worry. We do things like make impulsive decisions you know we, we store up a lot of problems for later but it it, it goes down to, to okay I'm, I'm feeling helpless and just that feeling is something that human beings you know myself included just don't want to sit in we will do a lot to get out of it and if we're forced to sit in it our entire uh, emotional set and even physiology will start to change and shut down. And then we, we start calling that depression. It's like, no, now we're sort of trapped in. Uh, the third one is, is hopelessness. The one of the key indicators for, for, for major depression when it walks into a counselor's office is when the client says, you know, I've just decided it's always going to be like this. I, I don't see that I'm ever going to be better than this or my life is ever going to be better than this that is a key indicator that this person is not just struggling but they are in serious straits um, because again we don't do well with hopelessness we we want some idea that that things could be better that we could affect that we're not helpless we're not hopeless that things could could, could be better um there have even been a couple of times, I, I, I know in my in my historical research, 
um, and re from research, I call it fun reading in, in history. Um, there've been a couple of things, particularly like airplanes where, you know, they, they came up with ejection seats and, and, and all sorts of strategies. And the designers knew that the odds of it working were pretty bad, but they also knew that pilots who feel like it's not hopeless, that there is something they could do if they got in trouble, if the enemy shot them down, you know, that, that you have to feel like there's hope. Otherwise, it changes the way you're going to approach life and 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 your job and and what happens next. And it can be a thin hope. It's got to be there. So those three things: that that sense of isolation, and that sense of helplessness, and that sense of hopelessness. And one of the things that you can do is is chart that a bit in your day. If if one of those is starting to collect up, um, you may have some some really good resilience. And it's going to take a while. But if it stays there, and if you stay in one or more of those, and they're also cumulative, we we know that your, your physiology and your emotional set and even your intellectual framework for looking at the world is going to change in some pretty negative ways. That's great. I'm going to go back and touch on each one of those, sure, if you yes. don't mind. Yeah, so number please. one, isolation. I like this on the list. I think that I'm going to attach this to loneliness. And we now have a lot of data, uh, decades worth of data on these longevity studies that uh, loneliness is the number one indicator for um, being miserable in old age and or dying sooner than you would otherwise. Hey, this is Jason to interrupt myself. Some quick data on loneliness. It is linked to elevated cortisol, reduced sleep quality, a 30% increase in risk for heart disease, 32% increase in risk for stroke. It's associated with accelerated cognitive decline. And it was found in at least one study that the mortality risk of loneliness is comparable to smoking and exceeds obesity. So if you feel lonely, don't take that lightly. Do something about it. Thanks. That is the idea of isolation. To me, isolation is more of a, a position that you feel like you're stuck in not that you put yourself in. And it gets to that idea of, of um, am I alone or am I lonely? Mm -hmm. And so I can, we talked about this before, I can be around very few people and be quite content. And I don't like to be around a whole lot of people. Other people like a whole lot of people. And so you can be lonely in a crowd or you can feel great with just one other person. And that's so, why I use the word isolated rather than yeah. than lonely or whatever. Because yeah, that that thing where we we can't actually affect it, right? No one does care, as opposed to someone cares about me. They're just at a distance right now. They're not. Yeah. not here. Yeah. So isolated. Then I I put it like in prison terms. Like if you're really bad, you go into isolation. And we all the data on people that are put into isolation demonstrates it's pretty bad for you. <laughs> yes. So, so uh, that that's my 
comment there. Item number two, helplessness. Uh, when I think of this, I go straight to Martin Seligman's work with his dogs uh, and learned helplessness. And so these dogs were put into cages. The floor was had shocks sent through it. So the dog would initially jump, get you know frustrated. After a certain number of them, the dog would quit responding. And so Seligman termed it learned helplessness. And so dogs experienced it. We do too. And enough insults that we feel like we don't have any power in changing. It does that like you described it. It's almost like a dump of uh, chemicals that change our disposition. And we become helpless and I think you said depressed is what ends up happening. So that can help. That can be something that happens uh, emotionally, mentally. It can also happen physically. We've talked about chronic pain and how you can get to a point where you feel like there is no out and you have to live with this. And some people live with it. Some people don't handle that well and have uh, emotional responses to that that are in that same category of depression when i work with people with chronic pain uh, there are several phases most everybody goes through but the the most awful phase and most everyone can remember it is that they've been doing all this stuff and tests and 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 therapies and whatever is that moment when you walk into the physician's office and he looks at you and said that's about all we can do that is a horrifying moment mm-hmm. for people in chronic pain. You mean like this is it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what that's what medical science can do right there. And yeah. whatever you got now, that's what you got. Oh, that's that's a horrible moment. Yeah. Yeah. So some people give up at that <laughs> point. Yes. Right. Yeah. Oh, can I? Can I want to rewind a little bit? Um. Learned helplessness is a real thing, and, and and I'm familiar with that work. But unfortunately, it's also it's sometimes, at least colloquially used, as a real demeaning sort of term. Well, mm. that's just learned helplessness. That's why they do it. That's why the team member did that. It's just learned helplessness. Learned helplessness is not an intentional state. It's, like you explained, something that people learn from overwhelming helplessness for a long long period of time. It's not being stupid or being bad or being immoral or being lazy. It's it's actually a a, a sense of acceptance of of the reality that at least that person was in. Maybe they're not there anymore, but we don't change that fast. Mm -hmm. And if you you grew up in in the the family version of the dog cage, and you just assume that bad things are going to happen, um, then that's that's learned helplessness. That's not um, some sort of intentional victimhood that you you know thought up one one Friday night, right? No. Um, one of the other studies is is about kids who um, when they're taken before the principal for some disciplinary reasons that they're two big outcomes. They're the kids that believe that if they explain it to the principal and if they present their case, 
there could be mitigating factors. Things might not be so bad. They might even get out of the whole thing. And the kids that sit there, and when the principal says, why'd you do it? They say, I don't know. Hmm. Well, what do you think is going to happen? I don't know. What they're saying is, I just expect to be punished. That's just been my experience. Me explaining myself to you, in my experience, just makes it worse. That's just humiliate. At least I can not be humiliated. I'll just accept whatever. And, and those are two real different outlooks on life. And one of them is a learned helplessness. It's Again, the, the kid doesn't make that up. That's been his experience, and he's just translating it to this new moment. Mm-hmm. So, sorry, that's I just a little bit of soapbox. Learned helplessness. Yep. yep. That's important. I think an important explanation, a deeper explanation. Uh, number three, hopelessness. And this is one that I've used now a quote to address and then a, a tactic. So um, the quote comes from Roberto Unger. I'm just going to say it. Change requires neither saintliness nor genius. What it does require is the conviction of the incomparable value of life. Nothing should matter more to us than the attempt to grasp our life while we have it and to awaken from the slumber of routine, of compromise and prostration, so that we may die only once. Hope is not the condition or cause of action. Hope is the consequence of action. And those who fail in hope should act practically or conceptually so that they may hope. What I really like about that is it is calling us to do something, Mm -hmm. to do anything. So to me, losing hope is losing the impetus to act. And if we can just take a first step towards whatever it is that we feel hopeless about, then that can start to provide a flicker of hope that we can then build upon. With that, I think another antidote to many of these things is movement. Mm -hmm. I use the word movement on purpose instead of exercise, because if I said exercise, 75% of our listeners are going to hit the stop button. (laughs) So I'm going to say movement. And it doesn't matter what that movement is. Movement has value for us physically and cognitively and emotionally, I'm going to argue. And that can be as as simple as taking a five to 10 minute walk after a meal or Mm -hmm. after a traumatic uh, emotional experience or uh, you're feeling challenged in some way, go for a walk. It's as simple as that. If you don't like walking, can't walk. That you're in a wheelchair, go for a wheel. But being in our body. Yeah, that's right. Sends signals. That's right. Of, of capability. Yeah. You know, that's of, all I have. Pe- people laugh at me sometimes uh, because um, I like to, to go, I like to work on my car. It's too hot right now, but I'm, you know, so the, a few weeks ago when it was cooler, cooler I was out, you know, adjusting the valves on my car. Uh, replacing the valve cover gasket. There was a little bit of a leak. I didn't have to change. I didn't have to check the valves, uh, but I did. Because it's so physical and tangible 
and there's a right way and there is a path to achievement that I have a lot of control over. And I think every life needs something like that. A path to a level of achievement that you have enough control over that you can, you, you can pretty likely get it, that your effort is going to be pretty close to one-to-one for your result. Uh, now, a lot of times we find ourselves in situations where it's not that way. Talking to a, a dentist the other day that was, was saying, yeah, you know, you do your best, but then there's biology, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, and and, and, and I, I got that sense from him that it's like, no, this isn't one-to-one. You know, it's pretty good, and, he, and he's he's a skillful guy. But even he knows it's like, mm, no, no, this could just not work. Uh, no fault of mine. Just you know. And I think in our lives, if we can get it, uh, something physical, something concrete and tangible, and something that we improve, just mowing the grass, mm-hmm. uh, you know. And I, I think that. Often we we farm those tasks out, and then we wonder why we don't we don't feel as hopeful. Making the effort and kind of proving ourselves a little bit to ourselves. Yeah, that, I think that's a great point. It could be as simple as doing the dishes. <laughs> yeah, mowing the yard, uh, vacuum a room, make a bed. Uh, could be any of that, and it can also be go run five miles. It's it's totally personal. It's completely alterable for your situations, your circumstances, your context, and what's happening in your life. No. <laughs> um, when I was working on the valves, uh, Marie was out with, my wife was out there with me, and, and she was on the phone to a friend of hers, and I overheard her, you know, obviously the friend was was like, Bill's adjusting the valves in his car, what's going on? And she says, oh no, Bill's working out the interface between between his need for perfection and how long the, the bus muscles in his back will hold out. <laughs> That's great. That's great insight. <laughs> but it was that was my challenge, man. Yeah. You know, like how good can I can I can I get this based on what I've got to bring yeah. to the table? There's a curious thing about happiness. And it's been validated in some studies or whatever, but I just I just want to bring it up more anecdotally. We need struggle. Struggle struggle is not necessarily suffering. And to banish struggle from our lives is also to, like, like you're saying, hope is a verb. We need to act it out. But we have to do it in the face of something. I mean, I can sit there. If, if my life is in, in total perfection, every piece is like, yeah, okay, man, you know, I, I, I got hope. No, you don't. Um, if I go out and set the valves on my car and I kind of prove to myself that I'm not a professional mechanic, but I can do this right and improve my car, I have sort of gone to battle with physics and metallurgy for a couple hours. And I I I I, I emerge back. You know, I didn't set them perfectly. You know, they're within range. Okay. I'd, I'd like to do it better one day, but you know, but that, that there's that sense of there was a struggle and I, and I, I was present for the struggle and I involved myself in the struggle and I came away with a sense of, of hope and competency that I wouldn't have if it hadn't been a struggle, if it'd been easy, it's like, I just would have knocked it off and be like, yeah, okay, well, let's go to lunch. 
That reminds me of a term that comes up in the flow research. Flow meaning the mental state where you love what you're doing, you're engaged in it. You probably get that way sometimes when you're working on your car and you lose all sense of time. But they talk about something being autotelic, that we do it for the sake of doing it. And we get satisfaction from that. And if something is that for us, then it's more likely for us to reach that flow state. So that's kind of what I gathered from what you were just describing. Yeah, so, it's, 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 it's also uh, some research called the PREMAC principle. It, that's from way, way back in the dark ages when I was in school. Um, but it was that challenge to that's to BF Skinner and the behaviorist that said, we basically just do it for, you know, some sort of reward that we get. And, and then we learn how to do it. And as long as the roads keep coming, we keep doing it. It's really very simple and very mechanistic. And, and a guy named Premek did a whole bunch of research and said, you know, some of my subjects just did it because they enjoyed doing it. Right. And they wanted to see if they could do it better. And they kept doing it. The reward was doing it better, not not getting something in return. Can I do it faster? Can I do it better? Mm -hmm. uh, this is kind of fun, and that and the thing itself became its own reward, and it really sort of you know blew some holes in that very mechanistic behavioral sort of we only do it if we get rewarded. But it's like sometimes the rewards are like, yeah, I just kind of proved that that I'm, that I'm up for this. Something new something different, a nice long episode for you to digest. I hope you made it to the end. That was a fun one. A lot of depth to that episode. We had fun doing it. I hope you enjoy listening. As always, please email us if you have comments or questions. It's bureaupodcast at gmail.com. Talk at you next time.